I'm going to warn you right off the top that uh, this is not a uh, typical three-point sermon with a key piece of scripture. We're going to be bouncing around a lot today, uh, mostly in the Psalms and a few other spots in the Bible as well. And uh, you can think of this maybe as, as a flyover of the Psalms. This is uh, the introduction to a series that we're going to be running. And the question that I'm going to be asking today and, and trying to answer today is, why are we doing this? What's the value of the Psalms? Uh, what are we trying to get at? Why did we choose this book uh, to dig into? And so you can think of it kind of as an appetite wetter uh, for what is to come. And I'll, I'll also warn you that because we're moving quickly through a lot of pieces of Scripture, uh, it might be tough to keep up in your Bibles. You can, you can take it as sort of a, a sword drill if you want to. Uh, or I'm going to try uh, and have all the Scripture up here on the screen. So I'll be giving the video guy a bit of a workout today with the message and uh, I've never given this advice before, I don't think, but it might make the most sense just to keep up with what's going on the screen here rather than trying to flip through your Bibles because you'll find that you're getting there and that we're already moving on. Um, but I want to start by asking you guys a question, and, and I'm happy to have actual answers here. When you think of the Psalms, the book of Psalms, kind of in the middle of your Bible, 150 chapters, what do you think of? What words or feelings or even verses come to mind? What jumps into your head? When you think of the Psalms, praise and worship. Yeah, absolutely. What was that? Comfort. Yes, comfort is huge in the Psalms. Are there other words that jump to mind? David's writings. Yeah, he wrote a lot of the Psalms, about half of them. Yeah. Honest. Absolutely. Yeah, and you can see already that that's a bit what we're getting into today. Very honest. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, right? Many of us have memorized that piece of scripture. It's. Uh, it's a powerful statement of God guiding us and being with us through tough times. And the Psalms are great at that sort of thing. But the Psalms are a big uh, and varied book, and they can be dense uh, and difficult to get into sometimes, too. Um, it's poetry, right? A lot of it is. And poetry can be difficult to understand. Uh, I think of, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. When I was a kid... I spent a lot of time trying to figure out where this deer got pants from <laughs> and, and what that had to do with my soul or relationship with Jesus. Uh, and even now that I, of course, understand those words, that, that analogy still doesn't totally click with me. I've never seen a deer panting for any, anything at all. Um, some of you who are a little bit more outdoorsy, maybe that totally connects with you on a really deep level. You get that. Uh, but for me, it doesn't totally land. And that makes sense. Analogy um, and, and examples like that, they're going to totally depend on what we've experienced in our lives, right? Some of them are going to land really well, speak deeply to our hearts. Some of them uh, aren't going to stick so much, and that's okay. Um, and one of my favorite poems, actually, not a psalm, but a modern poem, pokes a little bit of fun at the ridiculousness or the silliness or maybe the self-importance sometimes of analogy, the way that we use analogy to communicate meaning, uh, meaning in our writing. So it's by Billy Collins, and it's a poem called Litany, and I'm going to read it for you now. You are the bread and the knife, the crystal goblet and the wine. You are the dew on the morning grass and the burning wheel of the sun. You are the white apron of the baker and the marsh birds suddenly in flight. However, you are not the wind in the orchard, the plums on the counter, or the house of cards, and you are certainly not the pine-scented air. There is just no way that you are the pine-scented air. It is possible that you are the fish under the bridge, 
maybe even the pigeon on the general's head, but you are not even close to being the field of cornflowers at dusk. And a quick look in the mirror will show that you are neither the boots in the corner nor the boat asleep in its boathouse. It might interest you to know, speaking of the plentiful imagery of the world, that I am the sound of rain on the roof. I also happen to be a shooting star and the evening paper blowing down an alley and a basket of chestnuts on the kitchen table. I am also the moon in the trees and the blind woman's teacup. But don't worry, I am not the bread and the knife. You are still the bread and the knife. You will always be the bread and the knife. Not to mention the crystal goblet and somehow the wine. So analogies can get a little bit silly sometimes. And besides that, uh, the subject matter of the Psalms can be a bit of a head-scratcher. Have you ever tried to read the Psalms systematically, 1 through 150, kind of start at the beginning and work your way through? Uh, and it starts out well enough. Uh, Psalm 1 starts, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And that feels good and wholesome. And I can pray through that. I feel that. And I can get behind the truth that that represents, that's presented here. Uh, but you get to Psalm 2, and it says this. Why do the nations conspire and peoples plot in vain? And then later, the one enthroned in heaven, God, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. And to me, already... It's getting a little bit harder to read this prayerfully. I don't totally know what to do with this. How do, how do I work with this? I, do I believe that God's up in heaven laughing at sinners and scoffing at them? Do, does that fit in with my understanding of who God is? How do I reconcile the idea of a God who wants all to be saved with this image? It's, it's, it's tough for me. And then Psalm 3 really goes off the rails. And it says, Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. And I go, how do I pray through that? What am I supposed to get out of that? Is that helpful for me to think that way? Is it good for me to think that way? Is this keeping my mind on whatever is noble and right and pure and admirable? Is this the way that I should be thinking about my enemies? What happened to turn the other cheek? So, my point is, is that this is a tricky book to get into in some ways. And I wrestled a lot with how to open this series. I could have done a deep dive into the historical context of the Psalms or the different authors of the Psalms, you know, which ones were written by David, which ones were written in Babylon. Or I could have spent time talking about the impact of the Psalms, how they've been used in Jewish tradition or what their purposes have been uh, throughout history. Or he could have spent some time breaking down the different categories of psalms. The five books of psalms that are found here. And there are many different types of categories uh, and different types of psalms that deal with different subject matter. Uh, and if you've been listening to me preach for a few years, you know that I love that sort of stuff. It might be a little bit boring for you sometimes, but I have fun up here with it. Um, and, side note, there was a video linked with the bulletin this week that does go deep into some of those things. That does take a look at how the book was written, and how it was put together, and the intentions behind it, and the themes. So if that's interesting to you, uh, go back and watch that video, definitely. It does a very, very good job of it. But as I processed the Psalms, um, it didn't make sense to me to take something that's so intimate and personal 
uh, and heartfelt, and then, and then step back and approach it with this really sort of distant academic stance. It made sense to me to approach it looking at the heart and what is the heart of the Psalms trying to say. And when I look at the Psalms, I see that the heart of the Psalms, to me, is honesty uh, and messy honesty. And I think, uh, is it fair to say, um, when outsiders look at the church, maybe what they get most frustrated by, what most often pushes people away from the church or pushes people out of the church, is dishonesty in the church. Now, you can look at some of the scandals, say, in the Catholic church and go, that's like the extreme of dishonesty, but mostly what I'm talking about is smaller, subtler things, these the dishonesty of, of putting on a face to say that everything is okay when it isn't. Or the dishonesty of pretending that everything makes sense and we've got it all figured out when we don't. Or the dishonesty of appearing to have it all together when you don't. Or the dishonesty of being whole and perfect when the Bible tells us that we're broken and that we're poor in spirit and that we're meek and that we're humbled. And that's one of the reasons why I think last year our Hurt, Hope, and Healing sessions resonated so deeply with people because those stories weren't cleaned up. They weren't sanitized. They weren't oversimplified. They were real, honest stories about people dealing with hurt, hurt that continued to exist, hurt that had profound and lasting impact on their lives, hurt that at times clouded their vision and caused people to lash out at others around them and at God God himself. And so the power of the Psalms, and this is the point that I'm trying to prove to you today is that they give us permission to be honest with God. And we're going to get into some pretty aggressive examples of honesty in the Psalms. But we don't have to be afraid of that sort of openness because of what it says in Psalm 139, the verses that Pat already read this morning. And they say this. They say, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. God is intimately acquainted with our thoughts. And that sounds beautiful until maybe you remember what you think sometimes. Until you process how uncomfortable that could feel. That every little impulsive thought in your head is being broadcast to God. Straight to his throne room. Even the stuff you don't say. Even the stuff that you think about and you go, oh, I shouldn't think that. Well, if that's what's in your head, it means you've already thought it. It's gone to God. And so the Psalms say, why put on the face? Why pretend? Why put on a circus or hide things? or water things down, or sanitize things that God already knows. Just bring that to Him. God invites that sort of dialogue. Because that's what relationship looks like. In fact, the name Israel, given to God's chosen people, is a mashup of the name Isra, or Sarah, which means to wrestle, and El, or Elohim, God. So the name Israel means to wrestle with God. And that's not 
an accusing name. That's not a name God gave them to say, here's where you're messing up. That's an aspirational name. That is what Israel is called to. When they are at their best, when they are at their highest functioning, they are a people that wrestle with God. And one preacher puts it this way. He says that wrestling is what separates humans from pets. Pets can obey. They can listen. They can do what they're supposed to do. And pets can disobey. They can ignore your advice. They can ignore your rules. They can turn away. They can be badly behaved. But what pets can never do is ask why. Is to push back and to process and to debate and to engage in that sort of way. And God doesn't want pets. He wants people. And he created us in his image to be in a real relationship. And it's not a relationship if there's never any wrestling. Does that make sense? A huge red flag in a lot of relationships, certainly for a lot of husbands, is words like, whatever. It doesn't matter. Fine. When a husband hears that, alarm bells start blaring in the control room, right? Something is wrong here. I have no idea what's wrong. I have no idea how to fix it, but something clearly is very wrong. When, when somebody shuts down in a relationship and refuses to engage, when somebody stops wrestling, stops pushing back, and stops processing, even if they're agreeing with you, that's scary. And it's not what God wants from us. He wants an active, engaged relationship. He wants us to wrestle with him. And that's where this title, this honestly messy, comes from. This book of Psalms gives us permission to be radically, messily honest with God. So for most of the rest of this message, I'm going to bounce around in the Psalms. We've been talking about the idea, now I want to show you some examples in the Psalms that look at this messiness. We're going to start with Psalm 6, verse 6, which says, I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. When is the last time that we had a worship song that dealt with this kind of emotion, this kind of sadness? This isn't just a blip or a bad day. This author is broken and stuck in this cycle and exhausted and overwhelmed by grief. He is wallowing in this. And how often do we see that expressed honestly in the church? A slide 10. Uh, I said slide 10 because it's here. But what I wanted to say (laughs) was that I'm about to compare two psalms for you. So the first one is slide 10, uh, which is Psalm 25, verse 11. And it says this, For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. And then, slide 11. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and not faltered. These psalms are one after the other in the book. And you go, come on, David. Don't you hear what you're saying? How can you be so hypocritical? But isn't this sometimes how we feel? One day we're just overwhelmed by the sin in our hearts, by the wrong choices that we have made, by our brokenness, by our fallenness, by our humanness. And the next day, especially if we get treated in a way that we perceive as unfair by maybe a boss 
or even a friend or a family member, and we flip into this self-righteous mode and we go, how dare they? I have done nothing wrong. And they treat me like this? And so these two things don't make sense together, but it's an example of emotional honesty. You can feel both of these things, and you can feel them very close together. And so the Psalms are an example of that. Uh, We're going to go to Psalm 44, verses 23 and 24, which says, Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? And this one really floors me. Are we allowed to talk to God like this? Get up, God. Are you sleeping? Did you miss your alarm? Stop hiding your face. Doesn't it seem like praying like this would create a barrier between you and God? Doesn't it feel like God would be unhappy with you about this? That maybe you're bringing trouble on yourself by saying this? That maybe he's in heaven with a lightning bolt going, rouse myself? Oh, you bet I'll rouse myself. But this is in Israel's prayer book. This is in their psalm book. This psalm... Psalm 44 has instructions to play it with music for worship. We're going to go to Psalm 55, verses 5 and 6. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I say, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. You ever feel that way? I just want to sprout wings and fly away. I'm so done. I am so done with this situation. I am so overwhelmed by this person or this problem. I just want to leave. I just want to get out of here and never look back. Psalm 69, verse 8. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my mother's children. Man, do you ever show up at a gathering or a family event and feel this way? Like you don't belong? Like what should feel like home is just exhausting or draining or filled with tension. Where even your family, even the people who are supposed to be closest to you, who are supposed to be on your side, your parents, your siblings, your spouse, feel distant. Feel like you can't understand them, that they can't understand you, that there's this invisible barrier between you. David felt that way. And he prayed it to God. Sorrow and anguish, and confusion, and doubt, and anger, and annoyance, not just with circumstance, and not even just with other people, but with God himself. And this stuff is brought. And it's a little bit tough to know what to do here exactly when I read this. But we haven't even gotten to the good stuff. Now comes a few of what they call the imprecatory psalms, or or the cursing psalms. And this isn't four-letter word cursing. This is worse than that. This is where things get really ugly. Ugly enough, in fact, that I wasn't sure if I should include this. But, but this is in our Bible. This, you could sit down and read this on any devotional day of the week. Your kids, if they've got Bibles, can sit down and read this stuff any day. And so we're going to go into some of this. Psalm 35, verses 4 to 6. May those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame. May those who plot my ruin be turned back in dismay. May they be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. May their path be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. That is a vivid word picture. May my enemy's path be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. I mostly picked this one because I'm pretty confident that David lifted that imagery directly out of a recurring nightmare that I had as a child. 
This idea of being weak and in the dark and you keep slipping and something's chasing you in the darkness and you're running and you're running and you can't get away. And here in the Bible, in a prayer book, we have the author wishing this on someone. Psalm 31, 17 to 18. Let me not be put to shame, Lord, for I have cried out to you, but let the wicked be put to shame and be silent in the realm of the dead. I hate these people so much, I just wanted to be quiet forever. Why? Because they're in hell. This is what I wish, God. Do this for me. And finally, the last one I'm going to look at, do you know that Boney M song, By the Rivers of Babylon? By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. This song that came out in the 80s, I think it came out maybe the year I was born actually, 88, somewhere around there. But uh, that, that uh, song, the lyrics are taken from a psalm. They're taken from Psalm 137. And they didn't use the entire psalm, they skipped some parts. And you may see why now. A daughter of Babylon doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them upon the rocks. By the rivers of Babylon. What is this stuff? Is this prescriptive for us? Are we supposed to mimic this behavior? Is this how God wants us to think about our enemies? Is this the sort of thing that God wants us to have in our hearts? Is this how he wants us to pray? Are we called to pray like this? What do you think? No, right? I mean, a quick look at other scripture confirms to me that this is not how God wants us to live or to think about those around us. Romans 12.20 says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Matthew 5, 43 to 44 says, You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I don't think he was talking about praying like that before. Ezekiel 18, 23, this is Old Testament. Do I take any pleasure, says the Lord, in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when people turn from their ways and live? 1 Timothy 2.4 it talks about God wanting all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. And 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Rather, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So let's just throw it out then, right? Cancel the series, rip it out of your Bibles. It's ugly and it's messy and it contradicts what we know to be true, so let's toss it. Right? It's a bunch of journaling from people who may or may not have been in a healthy state of mind. Well, not so fast. First of all, the Psalms themselves make it clear that these verses are intended for the benefit of future people. Psalm 102, verse 18, it says, Let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that all Scripture, and of course Paul is referring to the Old Testament as we know it now, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And Jesus, multiple times through his ministry, looks to the Psalms as a source of authority 
quoting and referencing the Psalms on a lot of occasions, and also as a way to express his own emotion, right? He's on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David said that first in his psalm. And in Romans, Paul reminds us that everything that was written in the past, again, talking about the Old Testament as we know it now, was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. So how do these verses give us hope? If Jesus and the New Testament authors valued the Psalms, and the Psalms, like all Scripture, are God-breathed, then we can't throw them out. They must be useful. So what do we do with them? How do these verses bring us closer to God? Well, Psalms is not prescriptive. It's not a rule book for us to follow. It's not an ethical handbook saying here's exactly how you should behave. It's not designed to be an accurate history that's giving you a point-by-point detailed description of exactly what happened and where it happened and who it happened to. What Psalms teach us is heart honesty. And God says, I already know what you're thinking. I already know that those thoughts are there. I already know about the evil you wish on other people. I already know that about the pain that you have going on. I already know how you feel about me. I know the good and the bad and the ugly. I've seen it all. And I died for it all. And I want you to come to me with it. Let's wrestle. What could give you more hope than that? What could be more freeing than that. God giving you permission, saying, be open and honest with me. I know it all. I've seen it all. I love you still. Let's talk about it. Don't pretend you've got it all together. Don't pretend to be perfect. Open up the doors to your heart. Shed light on the dark places in your life. Engage with me and let me change you from the inside out. Let me create in you a clean heart. Let me renew your spirit. I'm not afraid of your thoughts or your anger towards other people. I'm not afraid, God says, of your frustration or anger towards me. I'm not afraid of your cursing, of your sin, of your hatred towards others. I'm not afraid of it. I have victory over it, and I can change it in you. I can draw you close and make you a new creation. Because being honest is not the last stop in the journey. It's a continual thing that will happen through our lives. But the Psalms aren't an invitation to just wallow and steep in our bad feelings and thoughts and just enjoy them. If we pray and pray and pray and pray and every single day it's break the teeth of my enemies, break the teeth of my enemies, break the teeth of my enemies, at some point we need to ask some questions about whether this is a wrestling match or whether we're just yelling at God. But honesty is the first step towards real relationship, towards open relationship, towards real, true love. Not a fake love where you grit your teeth and do it because you're supposed to, but you hate it, or where you grumble and obey, but love with an open and clean heart because you've processed this all with God, because God knows you, and you've talked about this stuff with Him. And as we do that with God, it actually enables us to become more honest with the people around us, right? It starts to combat that culture of lies, not big malicious lies, but these small subtle lies. I'm doing fine. I don't need help. I don't have problems. I don't have doubt. Those lies start to fade away. As we say to God and to each other, I do have problems. 
I do have doubt. I do have hurt. I do get angry. I'm not perfect. And can you imagine the radical sort of community, the light on the hill that the church could be if we approached our relationships with God and each other with that sort of open, messy honesty, with that sort of realness? And I want to be clear here, just a side note as we're closing. Uh, Honesty and openness are two different things. We should be fully honest and fully open with God. And we should be fully honest with each other, but we don't have to be fully open with everyone. In fact, we shouldn't be fully open with everyone because nobody would ever want to talk to you anymore. You'd say, say, how was your day? And you'd give them an hour-long speech with every sort of grisly detail in your life. That's not what we're called to. We're not called to full openness with everybody. There should be a couple of people in your life who you feel like you can be fully open with. But for most of the conversations in your life, when somebody asks you how your day, maybe honesty looks like this. You say, it was tough. But I've got a few close friends that I'm processing with it. Can you pray for me? That's honest without necessarily being very open. They don't understand every detail about what's going on in your life. But you've allowed them to understand that, yeah, life is tough. You're not being fake about where you're at, but you're also not being completely open. And that's totally okay. But in terms of our relationship with God, Psalm 139 tells us, stop hiding. Stop pretending. Stop worrying. First of all, the Psalms teach us, other people have thought this stuff before. This is not the first time that God is hearing some of these ideas. And it won't be the last time that he hears some of these ideas. You're not alone in this, in this darkness. And the second thing is, God says, I created you and I love you. I know you. I know you in the best way. I know you in the scary, exposing, worst way. And I love it all. I love you and I want to change you to be more like me. And so I want to close uh, by listening to a song. Not a psalm, but a song. And just like a psalm, I actually don't think everything in the song, in the lyrics, is perfect. It's not exactly the way I would have written it, maybe, if I was writing a song. If you want to have a theological conversation about the lyrics afterwards, I'm happy to. There are ways in which this song gets almost uncomfortably intimate or presumptuous about our relationship with God. But hey, so do the psalms in some ways. And, and man is this song, a powerful expression of God's call to this sort of honesty and openness and the freedom that comes with that. So I encourage you to sit and to listen and to pray. The lyrics are going to be up on the screen. So I'm going to close in prayer and then we'll watch this video together as a closing song. God, speak to our hearts. Help us to understand the ways in which we aren't being honest with you right now. Help us to recognize the areas in our lives that we've kept held off, closed off, stuffed away, that we won't even really admit to ourselves. Help us to recognize the thoughts that we have that are unhealthy, that aren't in line with who you are or what you've called us to, God, and take away our shame about those things. Take away the shame that we feel Help us to open up the doors, to expose those things, to dialogue with you, to wrestle with you, to open our hearts to you. Uh, And as we uh, go forward, God, with this series, help us to uh, pursue this messy honesty together as a church and together with you.
Amen. Come out of hiding, you're safe here with me. There's no need to cover what I already see. You've got your reasons, but I hold your peace. You've been on lockdown, and I hold the key. Cause I loved you before, you knew it was love, and I saw it all. Still, I chose the cross, and you were the one that I was thinking of when I rose from the grave. Now, read of the shackles, my victory is yours. I told the veil for you to come close. There's no reason to stand out of distance anymore. You're not far from home. And I'll be your lighthouse when you're lost at sea. And I will illuminate everything. No need to be frightened by intimacy. Come.